I'm Lister Sinclair, and this is Ideas. In this programme, we present the second of three conversations with Norwegian criminologist Nils Christie at the University of Oslo. Professor Christie has just published a new book called Crime Control as Industry, which warns against excessive reliance on prisons as a means of social control. In this book, he points to the skyrocketing rate of imprisonment in the United States, where there are currently over a million people in jails, four times as many as there were 20 years ago. And he warns that other Western countries, whose rates of imprisonment have so far edged up much more slowly, may eventually be tempted to follow the American lead. Unemployment is growing, and the sense of moral community in many national societies is breaking down. The war on crime, like any other war, provides jobs, stimulates investment in the industries which build and supply prisons, and promises at least momentary safety against those trapped in the vicious circle of social exclusion, dangerous because they are unwanted, unwanted because they are dangerous. Under these circumstances, Christie says, there is a strong temptation to accept the warehousing of growing numbers of marginal people in prisons. The control industry has no interest in its own abolition, and increasing social inequality can only inflame the fears on which it feeds. That, briefly, was the argument that Nils Christie presented in the first program of this series. Tonight's program explores ways in which he thinks that states can get out of this bind by recognizing that they have moral choices to make, both about what shall be considered crime in the first place and about what should be done about it. The series is written and presented by David Cayley. During the 1980s, the Soviet Union, as it then was, cut its rate of imprisonment in half. The American rate during the same period doubled. Does this mean that during this period, crime in the USSR was reduced by half? or that it doubled in the U.S.? Not at all. In fact, the number of reported crimes in the United States actually fell in the 1980s. There were less murders in 1990 than there had been in 1980, and less burglaries as well. What had changed was penal policy, not the rate of crime. In his book, Crime Control as Industry, Nils Christie points to numbers of other examples of the same thing. Historically, he says, rates of crime and rates of imprisonment have varied quite independently. This already shatters the common assumption of a natural fit between punishment and crime. But Nils Christie goes farther and suggests that crime itself is a relative notion. I recently spent a couple of days in recorded conversation with Nils Christie, and he began one of these conversations by pointing to this relativity. My basic point of departure is that crime doesn't exist. To understand the phenomena, you have to take as your point of departure an act. And then that act can be classified within various frameworks. And one type of classification is the legal one. And in certain uh, situations, it is the natural one. But in other, it is very unnatural. So a theft is not a theft. A theft is an act. And then in certain situations, it is 
natural to see it as a criminal activity. But the more you know the parties in detail and the more you know about them and the more they live in a communal settings where everybody knows a lot about them, the less are the chances that at least minor types of these uh, on a scale of severity will be seen as criminal. The example I first come across was a study of a sort of sheriff system we have here in the country of Norway, where we had a very gifted student traveling from the one sheriff in one valley to the next. And very typical of these sheriffs in the countryside is their insistence that they have no crime in their district, basically. But then uh, this student of mine, she was a good observer, and when she interviewed the sheriff, she could hear the telephone ring. And the sheriff called in his assistant and asked the assistant to go, let us say, down to, the, to a café because lady so-and-so up in one of the farms had lost her purse. And uh, it, it was a need to find that purse. And the assistant didn't know exactly what the sheriff meant, so he took the car down to the café, and there he found the purse, and he brought the purse back to that lady. And the purse uh, was in the hands of a young man, which, who was the son of that lady. But they never, and here we go into more <laughs> positive use of euphemism, they never called it uh, theft. And they never saw it as theft, because they didn't know so much about the social condition of that family. And so the interpretation was quite a uh, different one. The same with some theft of guns. It could have been a sort of cliffhanger, but uh, it wasn't because it w they didn't know that this was Ole, who was a bit drunk, and when he was drunk he wanted to steal weapons, and it uh, was to stop him and uh, bring the weapons back and bring Ole home, and then the whole thing was calmed down. They, these sheriffs complained they had a little crime, but there was crime committed by people outside of the valley. So when foreigners come in, you don't have the social story. So then the act gets the meaning of being crime. But when you see it in the total context, then you know so much that the simplicity in the legal categories becomes overwhelming, so you will not use them. But then we are on the track of what bring up the crime figures in modern societies. And that is, of course, that we don't know each other well enough. So the acts will much faster get the definition of being crimes. And thereby something will take place as usually takes place when crimes are committed. What this something turns out to be is just as much up for grabs as the decision about what shall be called crime in the first place. Once a crime has been defined and acknowledged, it will never simply be excused, but the range of possible ways to make good the loss, punish the offender, and purge the bitter emotions still varies hugely from place to place and time to time. 
Even when imprisonment becomes the normal response to perceived crimes, the amount still has to be politically determined. Consequently, it too varies dramatically. Nils Christie's native Norway is a case in point. With the exception of the early 19th century, when Norway abandoned many corporal punishments and prison rates temporarily shot up, Norway has generally kept fewer prisoners than comparable countries with comparable rates of crime. In his book, Crime Control is Industry, Christie tries to answer the question, why does Norway have so few prisoners? I think old-fashioned sociology is important here to say that uh, we have some sort of community. And a community varied by several historical reasons, not very seen as decent to inflict uh, a great amount of pain on uh, members of that community. You were relatively close to people of another sort. In the old days, um, I think it had something to do with the class structure, that the upper class, who at that time run the penal system, were by living conditions and with servants and helpers relatively close to other classes. Today, it has something to do uh, with the sort of spirit in the legal community and also with some mechanisms uh, uh, where um, it's a so nearly ritualistic meeting each year up in the mountains in Norway, arranged by uh, an organization f fighting for the decency within penal uh, policy. If you so wish, I can tell you about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do. Well, I could, I could maybe first of all say that we have a situation in Norway where we have 2,500 prisoners. That means 50 per 100,000, while you in Canada has 110 per 100,000. So we have half of your prison population. 2,500 prisoners, but we have 4,000 prisoners waiting in queue. And this is the first element, I think. I, I, I'm fascinated by the reaction to this by many people abroad, because they cannot believe their own ears that we have people in queue for imprisonment. But I like it. It has been criticized, and our prison authorities feel a bit embarrassed. But in a way, it is a very good arrangement, because it breaks with the stereotypes how things are. The stereotype is that you catch the criminal and put him in prison, and then he is a sort of other being. But if he can be in queue, he's normalized. There's a queue for hospitals, a queue for social service, a queue for kindergarten, and a queue for coming into the movie and the theater, the symphony orchestra, and the prison. But why, why do we accept that it is a queue? Why don't we build more? Well, it has been a very tricky thing politically to get acceptance of building more. And this has to do with this encounter or ritual travel to the mountains. Every January it's a meeting on a hotel up in the mountains. Uh, there will come cars from the, the prisons with prisoners, with guards. Some prisoners will come with their own cars or with the common bus up to the mountains. There will come some university people like me. 
and like Thomas Matisse, who is a very central professor who have been uh, arranging these meetings for several years. There will be journalists, there will be prison directors, uh, all sorts of people. And during three days and nights, we meet up in the mountains for very, very vivid discussions on criminal policy questions and very, very lively nights uh, discussing some drinking, uh, lots of talking on the same topics. You can find in the late evenings a table with six or seven people and if you happen to know them you will see that here is the director of one of the more stern prisons in Norway. Here are some very, very sometimes famous criminal cases or persons who have committed severe uh, offenses, uh, murder, espionage, uh, robberies, sitting and then some uh, ordinary people from universities or other circles sitting intensely discussing prison conditions or crime policy or general political or where they want to walk on cross-country skiing around lunch the next day. The important thing in this is that it is impossible to preserve the image of the non-human being in these uh, circumstances. You are forced into seeing that uh, if it hadn't been for, the other person could have been me. So the human qualities help to establish a sort of common acceptance on limits to penal policy, would be my point. Netherlands has very much of the same penal policy, but there are certain other mechanisms behind. They have even less people in prison than we have in Norway. And a major reason for that is that the penal establishment in the Netherlands had very bad experience of imprisonment during the war and were strong anti-prison in their um, views. They have equal amount of registered crime as Great Britain in Netherlands. The curves, the trends are the same. But while England and Wales went to heaven with their prison figures, the Netherlands went completely down. They departed after the Second World War. And this again illustrates what we find again and again, that it is not the level of crime in a society that decides the level of punishment, the level measured in the criminal statistics, um, but the, the criminal policy, the penal policy, is related to some other deep features of that society. And does this hold up historically too? As far as I can see, uh, it does. Uh, typical for the Scandinavian development was that we had a peak of imprisonment where we had figures higher than you have in Canada today. We had that peak in 1840. But after that time it went down and down until 1900 and then it has kept relatively stable, completely independent on the in fantastic increase in uh, the police statistics since the 1950s. This, this is against all folk belief. But when you go back and look into crime as an endless resource, you can understand why it is so. So you have a situation where the population, public opinion, mm. is responding as if crime were a natural category to which yeah. authorities are simply responding. Yeah. 
and an actual case where it is con continuously being constructed yes. by authorities. Yes. Who then use that folk belief to justify what they're doing? You are very good in <laughs> explaining what I had in mind, so I accept that uh, explanation. But you can also see how this sort of break down much of the motivation for increased imprisonment. So it's very important to not to see the sort of sentencing process as at the receiving end, that they just have to act because the criminal has acted before. There are so many other alternatives. And in civil societies, it is then so important to try to regain ground for civil solutions. You will never meet any old-fashioned, uh, close-knit society that use penal measures to a large extent because people, if they are relatively equal in status and close to each other and do not have an authority somewhere, then they will be very careful with solving conflicts with power. They have to find a way of solving the conflicts. Then they have to find peaceful solutions. It's only when authority is strong, distant, and cannot be hurt by those punished hitting back. It's only then it, you can find excesses, as in modern states. So, if you really want to control power, uh, you have to weaken that power. Another feature that you point to in your book, which seems to apply both to the Netherlands and to Norway, is the power of elites who stand within their own tradition, who stand within their own understanding mm. and are not subject to whims of public opinion, therefore. You are so right, and we are, we could go back to the Eastern European experience where I first got aware of this. In the office we are sitting now, I had a Polish professor who we invited to tell about why did it increase so fantastically the prison figures of Poland. It was under the oppressive years of Poland. Because Poland was a country with such a good sociology before the Second World War. It was a, a mecca for sociologists. And so many of them went to the United States later. They had also low prison figures. But then, under the totalitarian regime, it increased tremendously. But they had forgotten to put a ban on their prison statistics, so we got aware of this. So we invited him to tell us, and he did. We had some troubles because we had an other representative from the Minister of Justice in Warsaw here, just at that same time. So we had to place her in the library and not tell her that he lectured here in the most uh, elegant way. Where he just pointed to this, that the old judges had gone, and new had come. And the new, it was not so important that they were the party members, but they belonged to another social strata. It meant that they did not have the sort of broad connection to variation, as some of the old elite had. And this is difficult to say, and you might easily end up in snobbishness. And un this has unpleasant side, what I'm saying now.
But what he was hinting at was that the old judges belonged to what they called the intelligentsia of Poland. And they had their connection to authors, to actors, to those working in the newspapers, those working with words, and often the bohemians, people who were in a way breaking down borders around and creating variation, showing the possibilities of variation. And if you know that from your own life, or at least from your own circles, uh, you have maybe a bit less difficulties in identification with those other in trouble. And they were kicked out, and instead we got this uh, new group of conformist party members. Not because they read Lenin, but because they were conformists. And they were vulnerable for also for political influence, but particularly they were blind for variations in human life. It interested me that in this part of your book you you point to this some of the consequences of democratization mm. after the 60s, what is always in Europe called 1968, <laughs> yes. as having these perverse results. So, for example, democratization can mean more horizontal relationships, mm. whereas in a, a, what seems to be a more hierarchically organized mm. society, you mm. still have more vertical relationships. Exactly. Even if it's only the old judge who actually knows the family of his servants. Mm. But then when you have prison guards who meet other prison guards who meet other prison guards, mm. you can have prison guards from 13 countries meeting together, but they're all prison guards. Yeah, it is a protection to feel relatively secure in your role and to be uh, knitted in uh, to people of the most varied uh, experiences. And uh, I really get scared uh, when this is lost first to people who lack this background and later to a sort of computerized sentencing uh, system, which will be the uh, sort of last stage in this uh, process. Computerized sentencing is already an accomplished fact in the United States, the country which serves Nils Christie as a negative example throughout his book, Crime Control as Industry. There, in 1984, Congress enacted the Sentencing Reform Act. The act created a federal sentencing commission, which in turn produced a sentencing table. This table correlates punishments with crimes and gives judges detailed instructions on how to find the correct sentence. So, for example, if a house has been robbed, the judge can look up burglary of a residence and discover that the basic offense level is 17. Then he adjusts for the specific offense characteristics. If the offense involved more than minimal planning, the offense level is to be increased by one. If drugs were involved, by another one. Dangerous weapons advance the level by two, and so on, until the precise sentence is reached. Nils Christie considers this procedure a travesty of judicial independence, but he does recognize that a certain idealism lay behind this attempt to prescribe what the Congress called 
appropriate sentences in its instructions to the Sentencing Commission. I think in many ways it was a lot of reformative idealism behind this. It was found that the, the old idea of treating criminals out of crime didn't work. And that pity criminals, they had done uh, relatively limited harm uh, to their uh, surroundings, that these were serving exceptionally long sentences, particularly if some experts said they were not ready yet, they were not treated. And uh, any lawyer could see the sort of possibilities for injustices in a treatment ideology. But as I also would like to underline, in that treatment ideology, it was still a sort of element of concern, officially at least. You did it to help the offender, to stop it. It was a help to society, but it was also good for the offender to be treated in this way. But then one observed, of course, that it was a lot of talk and little reality. They were not placed in hospitals, they were in prisons. They were suffering extraordinary because they didn't know when they should come out. So we have to get more justice into the system. And then it is, I mean, most legal theory is so simple that you can't believe it when you really start to take away the beautiful words. Uh, then they tried to find another criteria for having people in prison, and then they said they, they went to the other extreme and said, no, we, we can't think of treatment and his social situation and all that. Uh, we have to be just. To be just, we have to look into the harm he has done. How bad was it? But as we all know, the same act is never the same act. How can we compare theft done by a hungry man with theft done by a rich man? But the legal construction wouldn't allow that difference, because then you could create differences. So theft is a theft, and theft then has to be, in a way, forced into very narrow categories. Theft, let us say, theft of something valued $3,000. Then you deserve X month of imprisonment. And if you have used a gun, you add some extra month, but in a very, very specific table. And then, in addition, you could say, if you had done it before, three times, then you add, according to a, some other specification, exactly um, a new amount of imprisonment. And then you can, in a way, operate with a conception of justice that equal cases get equal punishment. And this is what is done now in the United States. It, they have such a fantastic, simplistic view of what is the a just system. But then justice is defined as equality in the act carried out. That's what justice is that. So in the United States today you're saying there are no more judges. There are just technicians who run courts and who know the rules for running courts and who can look up in the table what the proper sentence is at the end. It is 
when it comes to the meeting out of the sentence, this is completely correct. I, I don't understand why they have the judge to do this job, because a computer technician would do it uh, much more uh, sort of reliable. And the whole system is based on this simplicity thinking. But then I, and then I have to add, it's even worse, because in this simplistic thinking is open for all sorts of political pressure. Because if you change the standards in the table, and you can do that very easily, then the whole group of criminals will come worse or eventually better off. But as we know the political process, it is not one of leniency. Those talking about this would not be those who would said we should reduce the table. So it is a steady pressure in getting more and more severe sentences. And this pressure is so easily to transform into the legal pattern of that very one single table. And this then in contrast to the classical legal ideal, where the judge meet the offender, meet him through days, meet him when the two parties tell about his guilt, and then not only the act he has done, but all the reasons he did it, put it into a broad social context, so that it really is something to quarrel about. And you know, the more they put in of informations, the more difficult it is to sentence. The act is converted from that simplistic description into something that really starts to get social meaning. And that makes it very, very difficult to be the person deciding on pain. The philosophy behind strict sentencing tables is sometimes called just desserts. Many of those who agitated for reforms based on this philosophy imagined and hoped that it would result in a reduction of sentences. But in Nils Christie's judgment, they failed to foresee the perverse consequences of this effort to automate justice, as one dissenting judge called it. One of these consequences was that the power removed from judges simply ended up in other hands. Much more of the power over the system is placed among the politicians. They have a direct influence on what goes on. And you could, of course, say that this is, isn't that democratic. Uh, yes, if it had been a neighborhood court in an African village, it would be very democratic. Because then you would act with the responsibility and with knowledge of the social system you were deciding on, giving laws for, giving rules for. But in this case, of course, it is people very, very far from the segments of the population that really are hit by these decisions. And then the politicians are under great influence of particular pressure groups in that particular society. So I think it is a general experience that in our type of society that there are problems by letting the politicians have a detailed hand on penal law. That you need some sort of protected body in between. And then we come into the paradoxical situation that maybe 
we could use the stereotype of the sort of a bit upper class, arrogant British uh, judge. Maybe that is an institution with greater uh, protection of the criminal than the politician. Because the arrogant British judge has the arrogance of having the power and knowing that he has the power to decide, but also that he has the responsibility. And he can't escape the concrete case. He can't escape slowly to see that there is a human person coming up here. His results might also be terrible and he might not understand it and his class is another than the other person's class etc but he is nonetheless forced to see a human being and we ought to give him that freedom of decision so it is of some use that he is that close to the person he is uh, to um, uh, sentence while the politician is far away under the influence of special segments of the population and can then very easily decide what ought to happen in sort of very very simplified uh, statements as a law always will be but with no sense for the exception and when you go close to yeah, all sorts of people they are we are all the exceptions and I feel extremely unhappy both because I'm fond of the United States but also because I'm afraid of the contaminational effect of what goes on in the United States. I have this morning been on a meeting on drug policy in Norway and again and again I meet the police telling me what and telling the public in this meeting how lenient we are here compared to the United States. We are uh, we have an old tradition of uh, looking with high regard to what happens in the United States. It influences us, it puts standards for decency. And when they are now running completely wild, it's a very dangerous situation for the other systems to, to survive the pressure, to survive the frame of reference created by the extreme development in the American penal system. Justice, by long tradition, requires judgment. That is why justice, conventionally, is pictured holding a sword in one hand and a scales in the other. The sword represents the power of discrimination and discernment. The scales, conflicting interpretations which must be weighed and balanced. It is precisely this aspect of justice which Nils Christie feels is being lost to the prefabricated interpretations of sentencing tables. The Institute of Criminology in which Nils Christie works is part of the Faculty of Law at the University of Oslo. Amongst the law professors and law students there, he says he sees the same tendencies now evident in more extreme forms in American jurisprudence. They tend to see the law, he says, in functional rather than ethical or cultural terms. I try to tell the students, don't hesitate to try to cultivate your core activity, namely to take a perception of a great amount of values and 
try to open for an evaluation of these values against each other. And don't try to be so useful for your society. Try to be completely useless and be oriented towards balancing values. And this is the nearly paradoxical situation we have come to at this institute where I'm now working, that in many ways the law professors overstretch to be useful for society. And the sociologists and social research people here are again and again taking the point of view of value preservation and ethical dilemmas. And this, I think, is very, very characteristic of what happens with the legal institution. That, in a way, it is eaten away by demands of utility. And who should then take care of the basic weighting of values? We have the few of us here, then, who are from other sciences. We have been pushed to take over what some of the law professors have left. Uh, but uh, it can be questioned how long we will be allowed to do that. And the social sciences, immediately when they get authority in society, uh, they very often uh, lose this goal and also try to become useful for their society and go into the long row of functionalistic thinking and uh, utility. Uh, thinking, instead of being at the service of finding out, in the service of trying to carving out all the available alternatives, in the service of uh, understanding. But if you are in the service of understanding, you are not in the service of the state, because the state will feel all the time they are in the force of having to make decisions, and you have to help us to give us the arguments, bring clear-cut uh, decisions. And that ought not to be, now I take a moral position, uh, what we have to do at the university. We, we should be critical, reflecting, and it uh, should not be our primary purpose to take care of the state need. For me, as a university person, I think it is important to find what's the institution I'm working in. And it's important to try to defend the peculiarities of that institution and to find out this is not a church. It's not a factory. It is not a publication or journal. It is a peculiar institution with the privilege to work with words, to work with culture, to work to try to find out, to conceptualize. This is our privilege and our freedom to do. And this special institution functions, in my opinion, very well if it is given some, if it is not organized completely as these other organizations. There are some good reasons not to organize universities as if they were factories or churches. You should take good care of the differences in society and try in a way not to make everything similar, but let them blossom in their different, peculiar characters. Next week, in the final program of this series, 
Nils Christie will return in more depth to some of the questions he has just touched on here. He will explore alternatives to the ever-spreading industry of crime control. He will explain how the state often steals conflicts from those who are actually a party to them. And he will talk about why he thinks that law ought to be an expressive cultural institution and not just an engine of social control. In what remains of tonight's program, the conversation turns to yet another way in which the crime control industry is spreading, through the so-called war on drugs. Drugs, in Nils Christie's view, have at least two important social functions. They serve as an explanation of social disorder, and at the same time, as a means of managing it. In the United States, for example, drug offenses today account for a majority of the prison population. Control of drugs, Christie says simply, means control of the lower classes. I have, some five years ago, written a book with a Finnish colleague who's a professor of alcohol research in uh, Helsinki. We called the book uh, Suitable Enemies. And, uh, of course, uh, the point is that the world is filled with the possible drugs. We have alcohol, and we have tobacco, we have coffee, and we have tea, and uh, we have all sorts of glues, etc. But then the attention giving to a slight selection of drugs is not uh, quite uh, by accident. And uh, that the extreme fight against these drugs have certain costs. And we, uh, in this book, uh, are not sort of hedonistic uh, liberals saying it's okay with drugs. We, um, or I can talk for myself, I think that uh, alcohol is a rather complicated uh, substance that uh, as a Norwegian I'm rather thankful that there are certain regulations for me uh, with regard to that drug. I think it is absolutely silly that uh, tobacco is the most easily available commodity in my country. Uh, I'm very happy that dynamite is restricted. Uh, I accept a lot of regulations all over and I would also accept a lot of regulations with the, all those substances that today are seen as uh, criminal to use and particularly criminal to import and sell. But it is a sort of overkill with regard to these uh, drugs and this overkill has lots of bad consequences. The worst thing with the drug war in my society has been that we have let alcohol problems grow without uh, attention. That's the worst of all. We have a sort of attitude now that as long my son keep away from drugs then nothing matters. We accept I can be deadly drunk and thank God uh, that he hasn't used uh, marijuana or things that might have been worse. So, as the, under the cover of the activity against a few selected drugs of no particular economic interest for the establishment, and which are far from the menu of ordinary people, uh, the system has gone completely wrong. And we have 
Within a 20 years period, we increased our punishment from six months as the maximum to today 21 years. And 21 years is the most you can get. You can kill as many you want in my country. And you can't get more than 21 years of imprisonment. But you can get it for drugs. We are worse than any other country with regard to extremely stern punishments. And with the loss of guarantees against abuses in the whole legal procedure. But also very, very complicated for our social policy is that drug is such a beautiful explanation. We lived in the best of all welfare states and still some people look miserable. I'm often thinking of this when I walk down here to the university and I see the drug people around and a lot of them were just around the royal castle in the old days and there our old uh, prime minister from the Labour Party, a real idealistic man, living his whole life also when he was a prime minister in a little apartment on the east end of Oslo, passing these people. I mean, what's wrong? Something hasn't been perfect here. It was an enormous, aggressive provocation. So, two possible explanations. It was a system error, something wrong still in the society of the social democrats. Or the drugs are so deadly dangerous that if you touch them, you are lost. And it was easy to think that that explanation was the best one. And that explanation is some of the danger in the drugs, that you don't see the fundamental problems behind. And then, unintentionally, I, I underline, unintentionally, this has now been the tool for the control of the lower classes, just as they were controlled through alcohol earlier. In this case, it is illegal even to uh, use the stuff everywhere, and it's illegal to own it, and illegal to import it, and no decent people would touch it. So it's so easy to take them. And since these drugs are used in wide circles and probably more widely used by unemployed and people bad off than by others, uh, you can here take a lot of people in on drugs. And it's easily controlled if you have used them through these new technical devices. So you get such a, do you call it a lever? You get something you can grab them into and get uh, total control. How do you explain that people do use them under these very, very risky conditions? Well, uh, first of all, I must say that most people who use drugs in my country, they do also use alcohol in an overwhelming extent. So they use drugs in addition. They use everything. In addition comes that some people get more attached to these drugs also. And this attachment is to some extent explainable in the propaganda against the stuffs. We are told, the whole population again and again, and doctors are our primary source for this, that these drugs are so overwhelmingly strong. 
so you can't get away from them. And the same way as the Prime Minister. Drugs was a good explanation to him for the mystery he saw. Drugs are a good explanation to drug users also for the mystery they are in. It isn't only drugs. It's a lot of protests and troubles. It doesn't make it better to use drugs, but it is lots of other uh, things also. And together this increases the sort of strength of drugs, the belief that they are that strong. We know, of course, in reality, a lot of heavy drug users, at least they take intervals where they don't use drugs because they want to come up uh, on another level again. Or just life conditions makes them to stop. But a considerable amount also end up in death due to the drugs. But partly again due to the drug policy, which makes clean drugs difficult available, which makes it a need for sharing needles and all that. Mm -hmm. that you know. So I do not argue that drugs are not without danger, but I argue for a considerable reduction in anxiety level and to try to in a way have a more sober drug policy in uh, my uh, country. When you speak of drugs as a means of control, you're saying also that they become the cover under which useless people yeah. can be imprisoned. Yeah. But uh, I do not uh, work with sort of hypothesis of a sort of conspiracy that this is the reason we have the drug policy. I think the drug policy is a sort of serious moral panic. The lawmakers believed what they were doing, but it was easier to do it since it was not their drugs and it was not their people. But it coincided also with another phenomena, namely that the power balance between grown-ups and children have changed in modern society, which have added fuel to the panic. In the old days, you had much larger number of children. And what did that mean? It me meant that a lot of these children controlled each other. Today, parents are much in a much weaker position because the kids are not in the family, are not controlling each other. The whole of the control is on the parents. At the same time as th there are lots of arrangements that bring the kids out of the family, they can survive outside. <laughs> they couldn't before. Mm -hmm. So parents or grown-ups have lost control. And this happened at the same time as the drugs arrived. So a lot of desperate, lonely parents claim that this is a new situation. It must be the drugs. It is the social situation where they are in trouble, not, the, not only the drugs. And they would have been in trouble with liquor as well. But it's so easy, since two things happen at the same time, then to say this is because of the drugs. I think it is the general changes in the population that uh, is behind here and make parents desperate. And I understand that despair. It's, <laughs> It's again back then to the need for community.
On Ideas, you've been listening to part two of Crime Control as Industry by David Cayley, a series of three conversations with Norwegian criminologist Niels Christie of the University of Oslo. The series concludes next week at this time. Professor Christie's latest book, which is indeed called Crime Control as Industry, is published by Rutledge and is available in bookstores. Technical production by Lon Tulk, production assistants Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. A transcript of tonight's program is available for $7 or $18 for the series. Write to Ideas Transcripts, Crime Control, Box 500, Station A, Toronto M5W1E6. If you want an individual program, please tell us the date. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair.